An entire family here and then gone, like it was nothing at all. A family vacation abruptly ended by an unexpected visitor. A man and a victim with a dark history and an ending that only left more questions. All this and more as we explore the anatomy of murder. July of 1968, a peaceful vacation area around Lake Michigan suddenly changed. A small group of women were having a fun time in their cottage, engaged deeply in a bridge party. But the laughter was soon extinguished by a heavy odor in the air that permeated their cottage. Finding the smell so overpowering that they were unable to continue playing their game, the women did the only thing they thought they could. They called Chauncey Bliss, the area's caretaker, and expressed how powerful the foul odor was and that they would hope he would investigate whatever it might have been and to dispose of it so the rest of their vacation wasn't ruined by the pungent atmosphere. Out in such a heavily wooded area, one may have suspected a dead animal, perhaps something large like a deer, and certainly close by as the smell was overbearing, but the truth was much darker than that. The smell was actually trailing from half a mile away from another cottage, a cottage that contained a nightmare. At the next available opportunity, the caretaker took a co-worker and examined the cottage which he had built some years earlier. It didn't take long for the two to know that something was very, very wrong. As he approached the cottage, he noticed holes in the glass of the windows. Peering inside, much to his dismay, he witnessed a human body on the living room floor, rotting in the summer heat. When they unlatched the door and opened it, the thick, putrid air hit them both intensely, as did the countless flies that had found their way inside the cabin. The horrible truth was soon realized. The family that had been staying in the cottage, their summer home, for an extended vacation, were all inside dead. Richard Robeson, his wife Shirley, and their four children, Richard Jr., 19, Gary, 17, Randy, 12, and Susan, 8, had all been violently murdered. To make matters worse, they had been in that cottage dead for nearly a month, decomposing with no one to check on them. The Robeson family had been planning on leaving the cottage to take a trip towards Florida, so no one found it odd when the Robeson family hadn't been seen in quite some time. The dead bodies had been repositioned and curtains had been drawn partially, and some precious items such as jewelry had been stolen. Richard's wife Shirley had been positioned to make it appear as if she had been sexually assaulted, but police believed that was only an attempt at misdirection and that surely was never sexually assaulted. As newspapers furiously printed the story, all anyone could wonder is why and how. Police investigation determined that whoever had killed the Robeson family had come equipped with a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle which they fired from outside of the cottage and through the window five times, aimed at Richard Robeson, who was hit and dropped to the floor. The killer then wasted no time in bursting through the cottage's door and gunning down the entire family inside with a Beretta pistol. 
The killer then went on to take a hammer and bludgeoned Richard repeatedly with it, signifying a deep personal hatred for Richard. An act like this symbolized that this was more than just a random murder, but something premeditated, something calculated. Richard was chosen for a specific reason, but the killer wasn't finished. He took the bloody hammer then to eight-year-old Susan and beat her ruthlessly as well, her bones crushing and caving in the wake of each merciless strike. Leaving an entire family dead, the killer vanished into the darkness, and their bodies would remain until the caretaker had made the grisly discovery. Investigators frantically worked away knowing with so much time having passed that their chances of catching their killer were greatly diminished. Around two weeks into the investigation, police began inspecting Richard Robeson's business, and that was where they found their first lead. Richard was a very successful advertising executive and magazine publisher, and one of his employees was a man by the name of Joseph Raymond Scalaro III, a man in his 30s who had been close to Richard. Joseph was known as a less-than-trustworthy individual, often involved in criminal activities, which he himself admitted to. Some of these activities involved stealing stealing money from people and businesses. Some sources claim that Joseph was even embezzling money from Richard's company, despite the fact that Richard admired him, which set up a very clear motive for the death of Richard Robeson. Needless to say, police kept a very close eye on Joseph, strongly believing that he was the murderer, but Joseph denied it at every turn. Police had Joseph take three separate polygraph tests, more popularly referred to as lie detector tests, and Joseph Joseph failed the first two. The third was inconclusive. However, this proved nothing, as polygraph tests are not foolproof and often result in misinformation, which is why oftentimes results of a polygraph test are not admissible in court cases. Police continue to gather evidence and question witnesses. Aside from the bullet casings found at the scene, the bloodied hammer was also recovered. However, any chance of lifting fingerprints from the hammer was lost when an officer wrapped a handkerchief around the handle to hold the hammer up for a photograph, unknowingly rendering any fingerprints beneath it unidentifiable. Police determined that the murder had to have had occurred no earlier than June 25th. They confirmed that Richard was making phone calls to his business in the early morning of June 25th, sounding angry over what some assume was the discovery of Joseph embezzling money. Joseph left the office shortly after the phone calls and didn't return. Workers who had been trimming trees noticed the broken glass in the Robeson's windows when they were working the next day on June 26th. Police also questioned the neighbors, known as the Freemans, who were able to place gunshots on the evening of June 25th. But considering it was still a bit light out, they believed that the shooting was more recreational than murderous, so they never thought to call authorities. A murderous event that left an entire family dead and brutalized. But could it have truly been Joseph Scalaro, an employee that Richard admired so much that he was considering cutting Joseph into the business itself? An employee that Richard gave a substantial raise to, boosting him from $300 a week to around $1,000 a week. According to Joseph, all these things were very well deserved. Considering it was Joseph who ran the office while Richard took numerous trips to places like Hawaii and California. But there was one particular factor that launched Joseph into the spotlight as the prime suspect. 
The bullet casings recovered matched guns that Joseph owned and a gun that he had purchased just a short time before the murders, a Beretta handgun. He gave this handgun to Richard as a gift and claimed that Richard had taken the gun with him to the cottage. Due to the rare type of ammo the handgun used, it was easily determined that the handgun was used in the murders of the Robeson family. Joseph claimed to have given away his rifles, one to a friend and one to his brother. His friend's gun was accounted for in Chicago, but the one he claimed to have given his brother was never found. Things weren't looking good for Joseph Scalaro, but there were some facts that just didn't add up. The drive from Richard's business to the cottage his family had been staying in was about six hours long. The gunshots were heard by the Freemans at around 9 p.m. on June 25th, but Joseph returned home by 11 p.m. that same night. It would have been impossible for Joseph to commit the shootings at 9 p.m. and return home by 11, and hiring a hitman on such short notice, though not impossible, was considered highly unlikely. Police just didn't have enough to go off of. The public was stunned by the murder. Richard was seen as a man without any vices whatsoever. However, the investigation might have proved otherwise. Richard wasn't the innocent victim so many people believed he was. The accounts from a number of people who Richard commissioned to do work for him referred to him as high-strung and mysterious. He often wore a bizarre medallion featuring St. Christopher on its face, with an even stranger inscription on the back scratched unevenly into the metal, reading, To Richard, my chosen son and heir, God bless you, Robert. To make matters stranger, unexplained letters were found in his office after his death, one of which was addressed to a Mr. Roberts, and expressed a desire to, quote, be with you, my father. But that was only the beginning. In the Robeson's home, a chart was found, one that profoundly confused investigators. This is when police began realizing that Richard Robeson had some big plan in the works that he was doing his best to keep a secret. On the chart was written, The Superior Table, which was believed to have been the name of a secret organization that Richard was clearly a part of. Other members of the superior table had their names written down and were known as Mr. Thomas, Mr. Richard, Mr. Joseph, Mr. Peters, Mr. Martin, and of course, the ever so mysterious Mr. Robert. A note accompanying the chart addressed those on the chart and was written by a woman named Sylvia who claimed to be the personal secretary for Mr. Robert. The note was cryptic and unsettling. The above shows the chain of power as decided by Mr. Robert, Chairman Director of the Superior Table. The governed power of this worldwide organization which is solely set on complete peace and unity among all countries of the earth. Each of the above mentioned directors will receive a complete organizational breakdown from our computer headquarters. If you have any questions, please direct them through proper channels. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. 
Baffled, police turned to the Robinsons' closest friends to try to find an explanation. No one, from his closest friends to mere acquaintances, had any idea of what the chart or note was referring to. In fact, none of them had even ever seen it before. Investigators did their best to expand their search through the weaving paths of confusion and eventually settled on Richard's business. Richard may have been seen as an honest businessman publicly, but behind closed doors, investigators found just the opposite. It was discovered that Richard or his firm had been swindling thousands upon thousands of dollars from one of their major clients, Delta Fawcett. According to the investigation, Richard had been overbilling the company on advertising space. Also, thousands of dollars appeared to also be missing from the company's account just months before the murders took place. But no one knew if Richard was a part of these things or was even aware of them at all. Suspiciously enough, the overbillings began around a month after Joseph Scalaro, the prime suspect in the murder of the Robeson family, was hired as part of Richard's company. When questioned, Joseph denied any involvement and claimed that Richard and his accountant were the ones who took care of all of the billings. When police questioned Richard's accountant, he refused to speak about anything regarding the business and remained tight-lipped regarding his job responsibilities. But the suspicious financial financial activities didn't end after Richard's death. They continued to a point where certain companies parted ways from Richard's company and the reasoning was attributed to the practices of Joseph Scalaro. Richard was also reported to have met with a number of people to discuss big business plans, secretive plans, that would have cost millions of dollars to fund. But apparently the investments weren't going to come from Richard's bank account or even his companies, but from a man known as Mr. Roberts. Richard approached two men who owned a small airfield called the New Hudson Airport named William and Arnold. Richard wanted to invest $11 million to develop an international jet port out of their small airstrip. Richard eventually left to stay at a nearby hotel. William and Arnold both received phone calls shortly after from the mysterious Mr. Roberts, who allegedly spoke in a rather unsettling, monotone voice. But it wasn't known if the voice on the other end was actually Richard disguising his own voice. But one thing was for certain. When Richard died, any trace of the the elusive Mr. Roberts vanished. Police kept their focus honed in on Joseph Scalaro. They always believed he was the one responsible, but all evidence was only circumstantial and insufficient to convict him of the murders of the entire Robeson family. Joseph went on to live his life and bought out Richard's part of his firm, taking charge of the business and attempting to live something of a normal life. In 1969, Joseph was charged with receiving money under false pretenses, but the validity of the charges came into question as the charges were later dismissed. But the ruthless pursuit by the police and the enormous amount of stress that came with it simply was too much to bear. In 1973, nearly five years after the Robeson family murders, Joseph neatly typed two notes inside his office. One proclaimed his innocence, stating, I am a liar, a cheat, a phony, but I am not a killer. I am scared and sick. I did not kill the Robesons. The note went on to list people and businesses he had cheated in his life in a clear attempt to come clean. The second note was one to his mother tacked outside of his office door, telling her not to enter. 
He sat down in his chair, leaned back, and put a 25 caliber pistol to the right side of his head, a weapon much like the one used to kill the Robesons, and squeezed the trigger, shooting himself dead in a bloody suicide. The mystery behind the Robeson family murders went unsolved and still remains unsolved to this day, though many of those close to the situation have had their own beliefs on what truly occurred. One seemingly general consensus was that Richard and his family were all incredibly kind people, upstanding individuals who only ever benefited the lives of all those around them. All of their lives snuffed out one evening so many years ago. It's likely that the case will never be truly solved. Home is where the heart is, but when strangers force their way inside, your home can quickly become your nightmare. A home invasion that extended over the course of seven hours, two men that shouldn't have even been allowed in the public, and a devastating conclusion that left one man torn apart. All this and more as we explore the anatomy of murder. Cheshire, Connecticut, a small, quiet town where people enjoyed living, a place where they felt safe. Doors were left unlocked regularly, and children were allowed to wander the streets by themselves. It was a peaceful place to live, but on July 23, 2007, at 9.50 in the morning, Dr. William Pettit emerged from his basement, shattering the morning silence of his neighborhood. He was drenched in his own blood, his forehead split down the middle, ankles still tied by plastic cords and bruises were forming all over his skin. In his quaint suburban neighborhood, the beaten man crawled himself across his yard, desperately seeking help. A neighbor heard the commotion but could barely recognize the bloodied man. Police who eventually surrounded the house even approached with guns aimed at him, unsure of who he was. Still, William crawled forward in pain, shouting, the girls, the girls are in the house. But before anyone could get to the rest of his family, the house was up in flames and his world was changed forever. Calling Cheshire home, the Pettits were an all-American family. Back in 1985, William Pettit first met Jennifer Hawk on a pediatric rotation at a children's hospital. He was in his third year of medical training at the University of Pittsburgh, and Jennifer had just started work as a nurse. The two became close and were soon married. By 1989, they had their first daughter, Haley. Six years later, Jennifer bore their second daughter, Michaela. The family lived their lives in a beige two-story home. Dr. William Pettit, a noted endocrinologist, worked as a medical director. Jennifer, a Sunday school teacher and school nurse, was a kind woman, never having a bad word to say about anyone. They raised their daughters in the same way, Haley even organizing a charity called Haley's Hope, raising $50,000 for the National Multiple Sclerosis Foundation, a disease which affected her mother. Haley was planning to attend Dartmouth College in the fall, and Michaela had just finished fifth grade at Chase Collegiate School. It was July 23, 2007, when their happy, normal lives came to an abrupt change. The day before, on a sunny Sunday afternoon, Jennifer and Michaela took their usual trip to the Stop and Shop grocery store to pick up a few things. 
There, the mother and daughter were spotted by 26-year-old Joshua Komisarjevsky, a convicted burglar and suspected pedophile. Assuming by their clothes that the mother-daughter duo were from a moderately well-off family, Joshua followed them home. Seeing that he had guessed right, the man informed his 44-year-old partner, Stephen Hayes, and immediately made plans to return later that night. Joshua had been a long-time criminal with a rap sheet that included dozens of burglaries, arson, theft, drugs, and rape, some of which had never been criminally prosecuted. The 26-year-old was in and out of jail for years and often had romantic encounters with underage girls he claimed had lied about their ages. It was 2007 when he met his future partner, Stephen Hayes, on work release while living in a halfway house. Hayes had built up a long history of crime himself, including theft, drugs, and of course, burglary. The two men claimed they had only intended to rob the house and leave the family bound and alive, but things didn't go according to plan. That night, Jennifer had gone to bed early, and instead of disturbing his sleeping wife, William chose to spend the night downstairs in the sunroom. Haley and Michaela were sound asleep, and all seemed well. It was around 3 a.m. when two shadows made their way around the backyard. Joshua and Stephen snuck inside through the back door and came upon William. The two men cruelly woke him up with a strike from one of the baseball bats they found in the yard. Dazed, bloodied, and confused, William soon noticed a gun waving in his face. He was dragged to the basement at gunpoint, bound by tight plastic ties and propped up on pillows. Joshua and Stephen then ran upstairs to tie up the rest of the family, each to their own bed. Their wrists and ankles were bound to their bedposts and pillowcases were forced over their heads. Joshua and Stephen spent the next seven hours searching for things of value in the home while the family waited in terror. The intruders were infuriated with their underwhelming haul until Joshua finally found a bank book. Seeing it as their only chance for a successful burglary, Stephen tried to convince Jennifer to withdraw $15,000 from the family account. If she complied, her family would be left unharmed. He left her with the decision as he made a quick run to a gas station nearby. There, Stephen filled up two cans with gasoline to use for later. When he returned, Jennifer agreed to take out the money. Leaving Joshua in charge at the house, Stephen took the woman to the bank in the early morning when it opened. Jennifer saw it as a chance to seek help. Stephen waited in the car outside, reminding the woman of her family at home. One call to his partner could mean the death of her daughters. She went into the bank a little less sure of her plan. In the midst of the transaction, she was finally able to build up enough courage to inform the teller of her situation. The manager was brought forward and Jennifer fearfully explained what was happening at home. Afraid for her family, she commented on Joshua and Stephen as being nice and only wanting the money as if those few words would help keep her daughters safe. The bank's manager alerted the Cheshire police as they watched Jennifer drive off with Stephen. The police began to take preliminary measures as the two returned to the Pettit home. But back home, things had already escalated. While his partner had been at the bank, Joshua had forced oral sex on 11-year-old Michaela and recorded the assault on his phone. Haley struggled against her bindings, listening to the horrific act in the room next door. When Stephen returned to see what his partner had done, Joshua demanded that he needed to square things up. The original plan was to drop off Jennifer and flee with his partner, but glancing outside, he noticed an unmarked police car had followed them back to the house. Something snapped in Stephen's mind, and it was enough to convince the man into raping Jennifer on the living room floor. 
William was forced to listen below as Jennifer cried in protest. Fortunately, William managed to squirm himself free and, still bound by the ankles, escaped through a window in the basement. It was almost 10 a.m., seven hours since the men had infiltrated their home. As soon as Joshua realized one of their victims had escaped and the police were seconds from coming inside, the two men panicked and took immediate action. Stephen strangled and killed Jennifer. The two then began dousing her body and the home in the gasoline that was bought just three hours before. The two daughters upstairs were also doused with gasoline, and while they screamed in terror, a match was lit. William watched in horror from his neighbor's garage as the house went up in flames. 11-year-old Michaela died of smoke inhalation, still tied to her bed. Investigators say Haley had somehow managed to break free, but was only able to make it to the top of the stairs before collapsing and perishing herself. After they lit the fire, Joshua and Stephen attempted to flee in the Pettit family car, but were promptly apprehended by the Cheshire police. Stephen confessed to the crimes later that day, still smelling strongly of the gasoline he used to burn the house and the family down. Stephen claimed he had no idea how or why things escalated. The terror might have been over, but the nightmare was only just beginning. William Pettit, the sole survivor, has since retired from his medical practice and instead created the Pettit Foundation, a foundation dedicated to the education of young people, helping those affected by chronic illnesses and protecting those affected by violence, all in Jennifer, Michaela, and Haley's names. As for the monsters who destroyed his family, both Joshua and Stephen were convicted of capital felony murder, sexual assault, and other crimes. The two were sentenced to death, but their sentences turned to life in prison in August 2015 when the state abolished the death penalty. The two men are now spending the rest of their lives behind bars. In 2013, William also managed to find love again, remarried, and had a son with his new wife, though he is still very much plagued by what happened to his first family, and notes that a simple smell or song can send him right back to that fateful night. He is now planning to run for state legislature. Sometimes there's nothing stronger than the bond between mother and son, and sometimes that bond really just isn't enough. November 30th of 2014, an Okaloosa County police officer took a hesitant step forward as Michael Watkins emerged from his home in Mariester, Florida. A large knife was dangling from Michael's belt and an unsettling scene was set behind him. Just inside the home, his mother, 65-year-old Gloria Watkins, was dead, hunched over on the couch with arrows lodged into her skull. Michael Watkins, a man no one suspected of such a terrible murder, a man who was deeply loved by his mother, but he stood accused of murdering her. With the passing of his father and his mother's health starting to deteriorate, Michael Watkins moved in with his mother to assist her. For the past five years, Michael had been unemployed and moving back in seemed like a perfect solution to their family's problems. The neighbors enjoyed his company as well, thinking him to be an open and pretty friendly person. The day before the incident, he had even made plans to go hunting with his neighbor across the street. 
It was when Michael started to behave abnormally. A family member grew concerned for his mental state. The neighbors would hear the arguments between Gloria and her son often. With his family's concern, Michael had eventually decided to have a mental evaluation. Being a quiet man with no history of violence, there wasn't too much alarm. But when the 42-year-old began to go off his medications, he started acting erratically. It was only a year after moving in with his mother that Michael lost control. A disturbance call came into the Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office on Sunday, November 30th, 2014 at 2.48 in the early morning. It was said that a man was knocking over Christmas decorations and shouting at another person. The neighbors also stated that they heard voices arguing loudly next door. When the police arrived on Avon Lane, they found the walk-in's door open and Gloria inside, having been stabbed repeatedly and shot in the shoulder and head multiple times with a bow and arrow. Michael stepped out of the house with the knife he had used on his mother in its sheath at his waist. He was ordered onto the ground by the responding officer, but quickly stood up to go back inside. After picking up a small dog, he returned to the officer in his front yard. Michael lifted up his shaking finger and pointed toward the dead woman. He turned his gaze back to police and muttered, You see that? That's death. Michael was once again ordered to the ground. He complied but stood up once more, this time taking hold of the knife from his belt. He held the blade in his right hand, contemplating what to do before throwing it to the side. Police rushed to cuff him, but Michael resisted. The man was tased twice before he was successfully apprehended. Michael confessed that after a heated argument, he had shot his mother in the head three times and in the shoulder once with four different arrows. He had also stabbed her dead body with his knife. The deranged man claimed he was doing it to protect himself, saying his mother threatened to kill him first. Looking at Gloria's body, police had a rather hard time believing him. Later when questioned, Michael went on saying he did it as revenge for his father as he was convinced his mother was the one to give him cancer. Another rambling was that Gloria had stolen his diamonds. When asked if he knew why he was being detained, he bluntly replied, Yeah, I shot my fucking mom. Michael Watkins was arrested on the charges of premeditated first-degree murder and resisting arrest without violence. His sentence is currently unknown. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there.
Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.